Hello, and welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we explore the work of authors, artists, and thinkers. My name is Aiden Flax-Clark. Today on the show, Janet Mock. She's a writer, activist, TV host, and now she also has a new podcast. She was at the library recently to talk about Surpassing Certainty, What My 20s Taught Me. It's her second memoir, which was just published in June. Surpassing Certainty, Mock is described as a coming-of-age memoir about a trans woman of color, which, she said in an interview, she hopes might offer young girls growing up a possible roadmap to follow. She had a thoroughly entertaining and thoughtful conversation about it with Lisa Lucas, who is the executive director of the National Book Foundation. They talked about everything from Mock's time in the publishing industry to her work in a Honolulu strip club, from spam recipes and Zara dresses to the influence of writers like Maya Angelou and Zora Neale Hurston. If you're not familiar with the National Book Foundation, by the way, you may know the National Book Awards, which they present. But the foundation also does all kinds of amazing work promoting reading and supporting writers, whether it's bringing reading groups to underserved communities or giving out awards that support the work of game-changing reading advocates. All right, so let's get to the conversation. Here's Janet Mock talking with Lisa Lucas. We're getting our Janet Jackson on, so this is very exciting. Do our rendition of Rhythm Nation. I know, I feel like I can like... (laughs) All of that Well, I'm super excited to actually have this conversation with you at last. I know. I read the book a couple of months ago, and I loved it. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, So I wanted to start... um, One of the things that I loved so very much being a book person Mm. was that you talked about your reading life so much. So I just wanted to start by talking... And I was at Strand last night, and there's a table where you picked out all the books. Mm -hmm. So you talk a little bit about your life as a reader and when you fell in love with reading and some of the things that have informed your writing. Uh, This is your second book, so obviously. Well, you know, we're in a space of libraries and I've always been one that, you know, I always pay homage to libraries because it was the way in which as a low-income kid of color, the way in which I was able to finally have access and bring books into our home. Mm -hmm. You know, my parents could not, you know, as one of five kids, they could not afford to go out and buy books from the Scholastic catalog that was brought around, you know, the classroom. And so often my father, even if I tried to ask, he'd be like, you know, smack me. (laughs) There's no way we can buy, you know, afford these books and don't even show it to me. And so for me, reading was always like this gateway for me to figure out who I was, to find myself, to tap into grown folks' business. I remember one of the first thrilling reads that I um, that I took from the stacks was um, why do, um, um, Terry McMillan's um, Waiting to Exhale. Uh-huh. And it was one of those books where it was like so thrilling to read. <laughs> like I felt as if I was like tapping into the world of like my aunties and my grandmother. Mm-hmm. I have a good um, personal story about that. Do you tell uh, us, Sharon? Terry please. was really good friends with my mom. And so oh my, um, my parents' divorce might look similar to huh. the the, Bernard, the Bernadine <laughs> divorce and Waiting to Exhale. <laughs> you see how writers are? They always betray everyone that they love. Um, we'll use it all for material, all of it. Um, and so I remember one of the the first memoirs that I had read that meant so much to me was I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. And mm-hmm. we, we read that in class. And then I remember just devouring 
all of, you know, Maya Angelou's work. Um, and then it wasn't until college that I probably had a, even a deeper reading experience just through feminist texts, gender studies classes. Mm-hmm. You're there. You're basically, you pay your money to learn and right. to soak in reading and to do all of that stuff. And so for me, a lot of my interior life, and I think a lot of the madness of the world, I was able to just kind of escape it and go into these worlds, largely written by Black women and created yeah. by Black women. And, you know, you mentioned two books that actually mm-hmm. I feel like I read when I was a young person mm-hmm. and that as a black girl, I was thinking about being, you know, who I was, who I was mm-hmm. becoming. But mm-hmm. there wasn't much. And especially like reading kind of teen books or coming up, you're just not much representation. Yeah, all the books that my friends were reading had nothing, had none right. of them, none of the characters looked like me. Does that inform your wanting to be a writer? I think so. Uh, well, I think it all started... Probably my writing started from like the navel gazing, angsty teenage stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought I was like Felicity and um, and you know Angela Chase from my so called life, mm-hmm. and so I, I felt I was very much that girl in my head mm-hmm. that had all of these thoughts, and I just needed to start writing them down. I remember the first points in which I really thought that I was going to become a writer was in English class when I read Their Eyes Were Watching God. Mm-hmm. And it just like blew up my entire life. I remember having this like being deeply offended that everyone in class was turning toward me to answer these questions about the book, but then also becoming super defensive of the book Mm -hmm. and then of the writer and then of Janie, the protagonist. Um, And so in that sense, it made me then want to think about the ways in which I wanted to tell my story. I didn't know it at that time, though, as a Mm 16-year-old, but there's something about the way that Janie went out and lived in the world and then came back and told her best friend her story Mm -hmm. that really shaped my first book, that really gave me a structure for for telling that story. And then I I know in Surpassing Certainty, I talk about my first love, my first relationship with Troy, and it was through the emails that we wrote each other where I finally found kind of like was starting to discover my voice and my rhythm and the things that I wanted to talk about and like my days. Because after a while, when you're in a long distance relationship, all you're doing is really just telling stories Mm -hmm. that struck you about your day. And so that led to me wanting to be like, oh, okay, so I want to be a writer, but writers don't really get paid. (laughs) So I need to figure out how is this going to be a trade? Journalism. (laughs) And so then I studied journalism. And then you learn that it's a myth. Writers do get paid, right? (laughs) Unless you volunteer to do the book. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So maybe the first one I would have kind of volunteered. Right. I feel like that's the feeling that people have sometimes. It's like, I just really want to get a book done. I'm going to get a book done. And then the second one, you're like, wait, hold on. This is work. Um, So the second time around, um, it's a very different book. You're telling a very different story. Uh, What did you want to accomplish with it? What were your hopes to get on the page? I think the ordinariness of parts of my journey, because I think that so much of my first book was about the things that I think really excited largely, I think, cis people Mm -hmm. who have this kind of, and I think there is a great curiosity there around like what trans people do to their bodies Mm -hmm. um, and the bravery it takes to to make those choices and to do that so visibly um, and to have your body be a point of discussion. Um, I felt obligated to write the first book and obligated too to also carry this um, not just the burden of representation, which still will always probably haunt me in some way, mm-hmm. um, but educating people and giving people accessible language to understand a trans person, but then also a trans person that cannot be removed from the fact that she's also a young person and a person of color mm-hmm. and a person that didn't grow up with resources. Right. And so like trying to 
give this intersectional analysis on my personal life. Like that book was like hell to write, mm-hmm. um, Redefining Realness. And then my second book, when I was able to come to it, I just was like, I want to talk about my young woman's experience, the years in which I was super hungry, super eager, mm-hmm. looking for all these things outside of myself to fill myself. Um, and so there are those super universal growing pain things right. that I get to touch on in the book. And it was fun to like write about that. Um, I try not to read Goodreads reviews, but I remember reading one where someone was like, the book isn't brilliant, but it talks. And I was like, oh God, I probably should stop now, but I won't. Um, (laughs) The book isn't brilliant, but I want to, you know, there is something kind of um, subversive about Janet just talking about all the things that a lot of young people have access to going to college, you know, having roommates, getting internships, like all of the mundane stuff Mm -hmm. that are milestones for you as a young person. But then also being this trans woman of color, being able to have access to that and knowing that so many people from, you know, Janet's community don't have access to that. And Mm -hmm. so it offers a sort of a roadmap to, to living your life beyond just the things in which people think they want to talk about in terms of your body. Yeah. It felt almost like a universal roadmap for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wish I had read that book when I was 22. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I, you know, we all we all have these moments of sort of ambition in particular and trying to figure out how to wear your hair and what clothes you yeah. should wear and what you should wear to your first job interview. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I Zara. just, right? Yeah, yeah there were a lot of references. I mean, I, I had like, like one $89 Zara dress that was like my everything. It was like gray. It was so cute. I thought it was so <laughs> expensive at the time. Well, you know, for some people it is. But I remember like at that time, I was just like, Oh my God, $89. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can do this. You and know. then your coworkers, you know, trying to and figure then, like, out how to do it. The workshopping of a problem from black girls who are all like, okay, so what, what are we going to do? You need to pull that hair up. You need to do this. Mm-hmm. There's all these dynamics about my hair and how it's takes up, how it was taking up too much space and yeah. interviews with white women editors who largely were, had all of the jobs in publishing. Right. And I was trying to be their assistant and stuff. Right. You know? And I mean, so, and then that layer it felt mm-hmm. like it's also just bold to be able to tell those stories of failing. I mean, yeah. there's so much in there. I mean, but not. And failing up, really, yeah, right? Like you yeah. continue to fail up, you know. <laughs> um, Thank you. Throughout, <laughs> I appreciate your generous reading. Of that. <laughs> um, but uh, it's also, you know, uh, like really baldly emotional mm-hmm. about sort of how you make these choices and how you just have no idea what choices you're making. Yeah, and I yeah. think I was really, really moved mm-hmm. by the love story at the the core of it, which is really about learning how to love. I felt mm-hmm. like um, you can talk a little bit about was that hard to write? Was it hard to talk about your first marriage? And yeah, my um, it's what's so interesting is that when I was coming to the book, I didn't think that that relationship would take such a uh, huge, I didn't know that I would continue to return to that relationship mm-hmm. as this, as this kind of through line throughout mm-hmm. the book. It ended up becoming kind of like the framework at which I talked about this time period mm-hmm. in my life. Um, and even my editor, Rakesh, was just like, yeah, I was surprised that this was going to be like a love story. And I was too, because that wasn't what I set out to do. But I just realized that, you know, I met this person when I had was about to turn 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And he, that relationship and what I learned through sharing myself to him, with him, um, shaped so much of what I thought that I was capable of mm-hmm. doing in the world. And also how that relationship, its failings and my failings in that relationship then propelled 
propelled me in different ways. Right. It really helped me push. If we had a great, great relationship, I probably would not have moved to New York because I would have just been happy in Southern California right. being with him and, you know, eloping with him and mm -hmm. being his wife in some sense and like studying, you know, at some like UCLA or something and mm -hmm. transferring and just like moving my life to him. Yeah. And so I'm glad that it wasn't, you know, it was a problematic relationship with all of its failings. That then it led me to be like, okay, well, he's not the destination anymore. I need to find somewhere else right. to go. And then underneath that story is a lot of you trying to figure out how to, you know, control your own narrative. Mm. You know, it's interesting to watch over time, right? Throughout the entirety <laughs> of your 20s, sort of going from really having this tight, you know, really, you know, posture of wanting to create safety mm -hmm. and um, and moving towards this real ability to kind of walk around and and, and tell your truth as you want yeah. to. Can you talk about like the road there? Of course. You know, that's so great. You know, we I open we opened it. I opened the book with a point of forced disclosure mm -hmm. in a nightclub. Um, Which was awful. I'm out with a girlfriend and someone that I know, kind of just known in passing from high school. I hate this person, by the way. I know. I was so I hated her. I, was, I hated her. And that wasn't the only time I saw her. She'd done this a couple just of times. Just like other a nasty times. person. Yeah. She, yeah. She, it was Sorry. kind of like her. Yeah. Yeah, no. She's a horrible person. Um, trash, really. Uh, <laughs> but people are not disposable. Problematic. I'm not going to say that. Um, but some people are. Um, <laughs> but it was like, you know, Hawaii, Oahu specifically is, is small. And so I would see her. There was only so many places that I could get in with my fake ID. Mm -hmm. um, and so she often was there. And so I, I saw her a couple of times. But this one time that kind of was this composite experience um, where I was actually successful in the sense of convincing the guy that I that what she said was not true. Mm -hmm. right? And what she basically said when she tapped it on his shoulder was that you're dancing with someone who is not who they believe they are, mm -hmm. right? She's not who she says she is. So you need to watch out. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. I'm, I'm just trying to like get a vodka, right? Yeah. Like this is not, um, and so anyway, it can lead to so much, right? We know that there's treacherous um, space in which when people strip you of your story and the agency to tell your own story, mm -hmm. it can lead to so much violence specifically for trans women. And so for me, like I was just so like gutsy in the sense that I was just like, what is she talking about? That is outrageous. Mm -hmm. You know, and I go to a point of like denying right. what she has told him. And I probably would have worded it differently in the way in which she worded it to him. But at the gist of it, he, she was telling him that this is a trans woman you're with. Right. And I'm like, oh, please, what's that? I'm not a trans, you know, like this is crazy. Ha 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 chuckled, right? Like mm -hmm. that's how I start the book. And then I come to this space of I have a relationship and I, I disclose to him, share with him after a few weeks of being together and then we're together. But then at the same time, I'm really grateful for him because he asked me no follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. He's like, you're trans. I kind of get it. You're kind of telling it very vaguely. It's right. not very clear or exacting. <laughs> and that's the way I told it at 19. Right. Um, and so it's like this kind of interesting journey in the sense of like, then by the time you get to the end of the book, there's a sense of me wanting to open up. I want more than what this relationship has been able right. to offer me to share myself. And there is a sense within it as a part of the way in which I navigated the world was this choreography between literally revealing myself, right? I dance in a strip club mm -hmm. um, and then also concealing myself and hiding parts of myself right. and evading my truth and denying my truth in some spaces or completely um, erasing history, mm -hmm. like moving to New York City, I can just be this new person. Right. Um, and that's kind of what, and so I purposely in the book, like a different ending would have possibly been me writing up until the point of me 
coming out in Marie Claire in 2011. Right. Um, but I was, I didn't want to go, I didn't want it to come to this thing where it felt as if like she comes, oh, I, she, the protagonist, this woman, you know, <laughs> Janet comes from this place that I come from this place of kind of hiding and evading to being completely mm-hmm. open. I wanted to show the space in which I was in process. I didn't want it to have this right. happy ending of, yeah. of me like stepping forward and being boldly, right. you know, unapologetically myself. Right. And it's not, it's messy. You know, yeah. your story is messy, just like everybody mm-hmm. else's story is messy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was really, you know. I, was, I kept thinking about sort of that idea of passing and Nella Larson's passing was on your yeah. table at Strand and I was, yeah. you know, and I was thinking about that book when I was reading that idea of wanting to pass, wanting to be good trans, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to be whatever it is, you know, yeah. wanting to be the exception. Yeah. And that's an air quotes, like very yeah, big yeah, air yeah. quotes. But, um, you know, how do you, you know, how do you sort of get past your own bias? Like, cause sometimes mm-hmm. we have bias against ourselves. Oh, of course. You know, it's all this internalized stuff that you take in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about the ways there was no other way for me to not be transphobic because of the way in which our culture communicated what transness was, specifically trans womanhood. Right. We were always framed as either, you know, tragic, you know, um, stories, serial killer, silence of the lambs, mm-hmm. point of, you know, literally revulsion with people vomiting and Ace Ventura pet detective at the end of this film, you know, a blockbuster, $100 million, you know, like this yeah. is a film everyone saw. And yeah. so when it was, when she disclosed that, or it was found out that she was trans, literally all the men around are like throwing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just like, these are the, th- the messages that I took in. And so despite, the only thing that probably really did save me in terms of having some kind of sense of self and deciding to to um, push forward despite all of these you know misbeliefs about transness was having real life friends who are also trans women having mm-hmm. other young trans women in my life you know in my first book I talk about my best friend Wendy mm-hmm. and how she was kind of like this guide for me and also just a sistership that was just so pivotal and vital but then in this book I also have Cassie mm-hmm. um, who's a character and she brings me to the strip club and we have this silent sisterhood about we both know that we, each other are trans and we're occupying this space in a club that's largely for cis women. Um, and so if I didn't have those real life connections right. to trans women, I don't think I would have had anything to rebut that and to unlearn mm-hmm. a lot of the messages, negative messages that I learned about, about and trans women. And did that stop you from being political mm-hmm. uh, in your early days? Mm-hmm. Like, did it, did it, was it a longer journey to, to really feeling like you had um, a political stake in the game? Well, like I think also to- like, I always felt like I was fighting my entire life mm-hmm. to just be myself that I was like, you know, I was like, I cannot fight for anyone else. Yeah. Like there's, I have no more to give for anyone else. Like I just got to a point at which I can like kind of be happy mm-hmm. and kind of figure out like getting a master's degree and having a job that all I could do at that point was concentrate on myself right. um, as much as I could. And so like, I think there was a part of me that um, I write about it a little, I write about it a lot actually in Surpassing Certainty where I kind of was like, there's this thing with like NYU J school, journalism school where you know, they were like hard news. It's like all they kind of want to right. teach us to do. And I was like, well, I kind of think I want to work for like People Magazine. And mm-hmm. like, you know, like, and that's where I ended up working, yeah. right? I wanted to do culture reporting um, and not in a highbrow way, not in like yeah. a cultural criticism way, but like, the next where is Angelina? Culture, it's coming. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where is Angelina and Brad and where are their broad? You know, like that's mm-hmm. what I was, was doing. Um, that was largely what the work that I did for people for over five years. And so for me, there was a running away from wanting to... Um, and also I think too, the reason why I also chose journalism is because I was writing about other people. And so I could hide behind the questions I had to ask. I could hide behind very famous subjects mm-hmm. and ne- no one cared about my byline and people. Right. 
Do you know what I mean? Because Angelina Jolie was there and like I was writing, you know, about Kerry Washington. It wasn't Mm -hmm. about me, never was about me. And so it was really comfortable for me to be in that space and was a safe space for me to be in. Mm -hmm. And so in the New York Times Magazine interview Mm -hmm. that you recently did, you know, you talked about the complexity of being considered a trans advocate, Mm -hmm. right? Like that it's not easy. I mean, obviously you do lots of advocacy, but can you talk a little bit about that? About how complicated it is? It's so funny how that has become like these, the thing that people have picked up on. What's so interesting for me is like the first thing I said, the first piece that was ever written about me in Marie Claire in 2011, Mm -hmm. I talked about how cautious I was about being propelled. And I I think because I studied media for so long Mm -hmm. and like that was my career that I knew that me stepping forward in the way that I stepped forward to tell my story, that it was a unique it was a unique journey. It was a brown, black face out in the world that most people never even saw a portrait of success right. for. Like, I knew that I had never seen my sisters in a positive light. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I knew this would be important. So there's a part of me, like, there's a line in it that says, like, I don't want to be the poster child for mm-hmm. all trans women. Like, that's right. not what I want to do. Yeah. Um And I think largely a lot of that had to do with the responsibility of knowing that this was going to carry far and that I also had a unique set of skills that could speak specifically to changing the way in which media professionals and gatekeepers talked about transness. Yet at the same time, it has limited me from being able to just be free to be me Mm -hmm. because of having to like the pressures. And I'm going to bring in The Bachelorette. So like... (laughs) I've never watched The Bachelorette before, but I'm very invested in Rachel Lindsay's journey. Um, I insta-story her often, and she actually just replied a couple times and has made my entire life. Um, I was like, how does she have, like, you're a star of a network show. Why are you replying to me on insta-stories? But she is, so she's very generous, too. Um, as generous as her long lashes. Because you're Janet Mock. Um, well, well maybe, maybe, I don't know. But um, how did I get on this tangent? Oh, so last week, she talked about, she broke down last week, spoiler alert, and talked about... <laughs> <laughs> talked about the burden of having to be the first in that space mm-hmm. and how she knew that every single decision she made, whether, you know, the race of the guys that she sent home, if she didn't keep enough black men there, if she didn't ultimately end up choosing a black man, mm-hmm. that this would be, you know, that everyone would read into this yeah. and not just see it as one woman looking for love, yeah. right? Or finding fulfilling partnership. Um, and so, and similarly, that point of like, when you are the only in these spaces or occupying these spaces, you are, there's some greatness around being able to bring your people in yeah. with you. And there's some beauty in that. And like, it makes me not feel like I'm so alone, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I can only speak from my experience. Yeah. And so it's limiting in that sense. And so, so much of my writing, and I think that I felt this burden so much more in my first book, where it was like, I couldn't only talk about myself because then only talking about myself would not be enough. Right. And so like even my memoir almost has become a textbook because of the fact that I I will talk about something horrible that happened to me and then it can also happen in this 400 different ways. With this terminology, here's a definition. You know, I couldn't just write a personal memoir, even though it is deeply personal. That's one of the things that I liked about the book. Mm. I mean, that you do sort of manage to somehow get past having to be that advocate. I mean, because mm. it's annoying, right? Like, I'm, yeah. like I've am like i had some first black experiences, mm. you know, and first woman experiences. Yeah. And it's a, it's a bummer. It's great. Like, you're so proud. The and National you Book wanna... Foundation people. Yeah. But, yeah, right? <laughs> but, you know, you want to. And then everybody's like, what's it like to be the first black? Yeah. You know, it's like. <laughs> I only know how it is to be me. Mm-hmm. And I have this job now. Right. And then if you have the wrong feeling as the Mm -hmm. first black. Mm -hmm. But I thought that this book was really refreshingly Mm -hmm. sort of pushed that aside and was like, I am literally just going to tell you my story. I was particularly impressed by your, um, 
willingness to really go hard about reality TV. Um, <laughs> which I already brought up. <laughs> which you already brought up. But about TV in general. Mm. Like, I mean, you have spent a lot of time watching um, a As lot to of push television. You to read books, you're like, yeah, no, no, but it's good. I watched every show that you've talked about. Oh, okay. I okay. mean, so we were, we were talking about Felicity, mm-hmm. Sex and the City. Um, what were some other definitional television oh, American Idol in there because I had a roommate American, American, American Idol. Idol. Grey's Anatomy was a part of my first year. Her, the second season of Grey's Anatomy premiered when I moved to New York City. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Yeah, and that was like a big, big storyline with yes. your roommates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but no, but, but growing up really saturated in culture, because I think it's mm-hmm. great. I mean, I think pop culture is super important. Mm-hmm. I would not be me without pop culture. Yeah, me too. Um, right, but so how do you think that, um, how do you think it's shifting? Because I do think mm-hmm. that like I did grow up and try, you remember those little cone things? that you put your ponytail in. They were like what? plastic and they snapped. And you How put them in there. But, but they were not for black girls, really. Oh. <laughs> and um, they were all over television uh-huh. and I remember trying to put my hair in one. Uh-huh. And I feel like I had a lot of those kinds of experiences with mm. television growing up where yeah. it was like, I really wanted to be Punky Brewster. Yeah. But it's like, but I had to be Cherry. But it's yeah. like, but there were a thousand <laughs> other... Punky Brewsters. So, I mean, like, so on one level, how does it define you just as a person, mm. you know, just as a person watching all TV in the yeah. 90s and seeing yeah. what the world was, what was shaped like? What was so interesting, you know, I didn't realize this until I was probably deeply writing the book that I, and this seems so strange, but like so many of my protagonists mm-hmm. that I looked up to in television were young white women, mm-hmm. right? Felicity. Angela Chase for my so-called life. And Clarissa explains it all. Um, there was so much of my becoming that centered around these women or the the stories that they told around that centered around them. And so I felt I knew them, but I had mm-hmm. never lived around white people right. my entire life. Right. In Oakland, in Dallas, and in Hawaii, mm-hmm. there was always people of color. In Oakland and Dallas, mostly black people. And in Hawaii, it was Asian and Polynesian. And so it wasn't until I was thrust into like, I choose to go to Rhode Island for a semester in college Mm -hmm. and that I'm around white women and then feeling this, like I felt a strange closeness because of the proximity of whatever these images that was projected to me and that I internalized, but then they did not feel that same closeness to me or if they did, it always came with a piece of othering. Mm -hmm. And then also this sense of being hyper visible, but then invisible on campus Mm -hmm. as a black girl was interesting. Right. I don't know what this tangent, where I'm going. Um, but there was something about, like, I felt an intimacy with these. Yeah. Well, I think you, you relate, was, too. I mean, you're still, like, also just a person. And you're yeah. like, this person is dating, and they're doing these things, yeah. and they're wearing clothing. Yeah. And they are, you know, going to jobs. So there is a proximity. I feel like it's normal. But to you're, feel I feel something. like I'm not answering your question, though, which was about culture. Well, I think it's just, what does it mean for you? I mean, it's like, that actually does answer it. I mean, I think sometimes it just means that you develop a proximity to, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever's happening on the television. I felt, I felt sort of, um, like I compared myself, Mm. um, in a way that it wasn't a clear comparison. Right. So it was like, and now, and I didn't grow up in a place that was, you know, Mm -hmm. majority minority, right. I grew up in a place where, you know, there were lots of people mm-hmm. of color, but there were really more white folks around. And so it was very clearly contrast. I think I compared myself often to Destiny's Child. Mm-hmm. That was probably my yeah. literally every week going to get my hair done differently yeah. to like emulate what Can Beyonce. Can you your hair? Yeah, sure. I mean, I feel like. <laughs> well, this is, you know, yeah, this is. Who's your hair icon? I, who's my hair icon? Mm-hmm. I only want to know oh. so I can. Solange, Tracy Ellis Ross, yeah. um, 
you know, Yara Shahidi. Has yeah, so you guys thought I was asking a dumb question and then everybody was like, mm-hmm. yes, please, more. Um, Thank you. <laughs> you know, Beyonce, for sure. Definitely like the Destiny's Child era of switching it up, like for every music video, mm-hmm. like the braids, the twists, the micro braids, the highlighted, you know, perfectly placed, um, blonde highlight in the front of her face, oh, okay. which I, I tried like, to do that. over, you know, a relaxer and then that and your hair is gone, <laughs> um, which I did not learn. And I did not know that Tina Knowles put in tracks here. So those were not mm-hmm. her real highlighted hair, which I didn't know. Well, we and so that's why I lost all of my edges. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was a result of pop culture. <laughs> so, so that was my, what is this triangle thing? Yeah. That was my. Yeah, the triangle thing. Yeah, so that was my ground zero. Um, yeah. I wish I knew what those things were called. They were these horrible cones and I wish I had never wanted one. But um, what, um, who do you want to read the book now? Like who do you hope reads this book? Everybody, please. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think you know I the book really came out of questions a lot of young people were asking me whether it was through emails through DMs through Tumblr messages about how are you how are you able to live this happy life you seem to be very happy mm-hmm. like you seem to have it all and you're this black trans woman how are you able to navigate that and to have the career that you wanted to have and occupy the right. space in the world that you have and so for me I think that there are a lot of those questions we talk a lot about you know, social justice and politics, but I think there is a sense of like, how did you get there? And oftentimes when this this kind of a book is written, mm-hmm. it's written from a space in which you're no longer as young or mm-hmm. you're no longer as connected to that time period. And so you kind of forget what it's like to be young and not know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you kind of say it from this like, retiree-esque kind of um, pedestal Mm -hmm. of like greatness where you're just like, oh, I remember when it was, you know, the good old (laughs) days. Where it was like, you know, for me, these were, this was a decade ago. And so it's like, I have enough distance to be able to pull out and mine out the lessons and the things that I learned, but then also close enough to remember what it was like to be that hungry and ambitious, to be um, that sloppy and messy, to be that malleable and um, kind of, be able to improvise mm-hmm. um, and then to just listen to people's unsolicited advice and then actually take it. Yeah. You know, like I would never, I never do that now. Like I'm so closed. It's like, <laughs> although, yeah. you know, one of the things so on the jacket that, copy, it mm-hmm. says, uh, you know, about a young woman with no roadmap, except mm-hmm. that you are very decisive. Yeah. yeah. At almost every single turn. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, even if I'm not I'll sure make a decision you can the, see it. Yeah. And, but, no, you know, no. you're really, you know, had your own roadmap. You just didn't realize you had a roadmap. Mm-hmm. And I, I, how do you think that you, how do you think you got that? Because that's the question. I feel yeah. like, you know, for young people reading a book mm-hmm. like this, like, how do you, how do you figure out how to be guided by something like a, a desire for something larger mm-hmm. and to make choices according to that? Because that felt like a lot of what was happening. I think for so much of my life, from when I was really young, I had to navigate what people who actually cared about me said about me, um, or navigate their expectations of me. And mm-hmm. I learned to perform for them for so many years, mm-hmm. um, to the point of my own detriment, to the point of my own silencing, to the point of taking on so much shame. And I think what came out of that was a sense of trust in my own voice and my own truth. Mm-hmm. And so for me, when I felt something, it had to be right. Right. That has to be right. Even as to, like, I'm decisive to the point of disaster. My husband's back there laughing because he's like, yeah, you know, like, you know, 
we, you know, we have enough, we have just enough money for a down payment on an apartment. All right, we have an apartment within the next six weeks. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, right. that's how the things work, you know? Um, to the point of where I, then I reflect, I'm like, oh, maybe we should have waited this or, and that's a lot of the decisions. I'm like, I th- mm-hmm. kind of think about it afterward, but I trust my mm-hmm. internal compass to guide me right. in a sense. And so I guess there is a little bit of a lie there, a marketing lie on the jacket copy, which is what jacket copy is. Right? Yeah, right, sure. Um, to pull you to Fair. read it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, 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 thinking I think there is that part of where it was like I was tested very early on and told like who I was mm-hmm. by people who love me like that was their job right they were trying to correct me and put me on the right, right path and I was like okay I'll try this but this is not quite right and so I think that it developed the sense in me where it was like even if the people who love me are not telling me the complete truth mm-hmm. that I must know something more than what they know right I know more than my parents and so I think there is a sense of like I then have to be my own right you right. know to raise myself, yeah. I was, um, you know, the other thing too is, so 2011, a lot of people found out mm-hmm. who you were. Mm-hmm. Um, but that can feel like somebody just sort of like, you know, appeared, fully yeah. formed, mm-hmm. you know, like from Zeus's brain, you know, sprung forth. Um, <laughs> and that's not how it went. And I think that it's helpful to see those kind of mm-hmm. job applications and what you wear to the interview mm-hmm. and, and where you struggle and where you just kind of just fuck up. Yeah. Um, I think it's really helpful, and I hope that I hope your audience is a number of twenty somethings trying so. to figure it out. Because I, so um, I could have used something like that when I was younger, and I thought it was I think I could have too. And I think the roadmap piece is more that I have never, um, I never seen a woman like myself with all of my intersections. Mm-hmm. Not even not even pursue that kind of a space in that way. And so I think that there was something like that where it was like, can I even do this? Mm-hmm. But then also this other thing in me that was like, girl, yes, you can do this. Go do this. Right. So two memoirs. Mm-hmm. What happens after two memoirs at your age? I mean, Television. So Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I've contributed to the canon and Fair. I'm good. Um, I don't know. I definitely don't see another memoir, mm-hmm. you know, 34. I've already written my 20s, you know. Right. I got some life to I mean, live. you have to live a whole another decade. Oh, you yeah. up, yeah. basically. Um, so I don't, I don't, I have thought about YA often. And ever since I wrote my first book, I thought about YA often, a YA series. And there's this idea that I have in my head, but I just don't, I can't see myself even thinking about, I'm promoting a book now, talking about a book now. So I'm like, I can't even think mm-hmm. about embarking on another book but there are other stories I want to tell in different media. Do you feel compelled to write like is it something that you do every day or that you Mm. do every week or is it only when you really have a story to tell? Um there I can I know when I'm really I feel unbalanced Mm -hmm. is when I don't like do my morning pages which is kind of was my everyday kind of thing that I would do to just sit with myself and get all of my stuff out, but it wasn't writing to produce. So writing to produce does not, I don't feel compelled toward that, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And reading, what are you reading now? What am I reading now? Um, Dr. Ibram Kendi's Stamp from the Beginning. Winner which of I the know National yes. Award. Um, I have that. I'm like reading four books at one time. How Nani K. Trasks, um, she's a native Hawaiian mm-hmm. Um activist. She has a book called From a Native Daughter that I'm I'm reading. What else am I reading? Um, that makes me want to ask you a question about Hawaii. Okay. Do you feel Hawaiian still? 
Do you feel like oh, connected always. to Hawaii? Yes. Yeah. My entire family is still in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, I chose to get married in Hawaii. Um, being native Hawaiian too, not just being not just being a local person. Right. Um, I don't think I can ever have that out of me. Um, I would say that my native Hawaiian side of my family is a lot more radical than my black side of the family mm-hmm. in terms of racial politic and vocalizing their distaste for colonialism and um, the ways in which white folk take take space and then take up space. Um, so I come from that space. Right. And so I think that that's also a part of the core of a lot of my activism comes mm-hmm. from, I think, definitely growing up in Hawaii, even though it was like love and, you know, gender nonconformity and, you know, third space for right. gender and all that, you know, beautiful stuff. But right. I think a big part of my fire. I was shocked to sort of like, I mean, I guess I just never really thought about it. It's mm. so geographically removed from the spaces that yes. I inhabit, right? Like it's just distance. It should um, not be a how state. Culturally different. Yeah. It's it, it just, it's in. It, <laughs> Literally it's from military. That's why it's, yeah. Least of all the spam sushi. Oh yeah. Everyone's obsessed with spam. I was just talking I mean, about it really spam. Is, it, it really <laughs> is an interesting thing that this is like a, this is a thing. Yeah. I order it once. That there's a place in, in East Harlem. that maybe yeah. doesn't know about the spam sushi? Spam is, well, spam, not we just spam, spam sushi, but like spam is I was like mostly in fried interested rice. in the spam. Oh, in the spam. <laughs> the spam that was actually. That made created. headlines when um, President Obama first went to Hawaii for his vacation, mm-hmm. was that they had a picture of him eating a spam musubi. And a spam musubi is basically a layer of spam that is um, not grilled, um, pan fried in. You're making face. No, I know. I just uh, no. I'm gonna. It's a little judgy. A little judgy. But I'm gonna. I'm gonna go home and eat spam. To pay no, you cannot. For you cannot my, eat um, spam that way because it's that's not, not the way to eat. Spam. <laughs> it's like you can't just kick it out of the can and then like you know you put some brown sugar and soy sauce. You kind of pan fry it. You put it on a like a nice little block of rice mm-hmm. on the top and you wrap it in nori, oh, which okay. is the seaweed. And then you have that's your and Troy meal. had a weird re- reaction to it in the book. There's a just scene because of the, ju- the mainland judgment, yes. mainland judgment of, of, spam. of spam, but which is all just to say that Hawaii is a very different place, it and is. it was interesting to see yeah. how it had informed your identity mm-hmm. and how you had become. I mean, because again, coming up in New Jersey, which is where I grew up, yeah. you have a totally yeah. <laughs> I mean, but there's no universe in which you can yeah. be like, well, everybody is a person of color. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the overwhelming majority of the people that I encounter, yeah. which probably gives you, which is maybe why I respond to sort of all these television, hmm. um, no, my course. so-called life. And I yeah. see it and I think I'm not in that. And you yeah, think yeah. this is how interesting. Yeah. This is like how they live. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe it is time to let you all ask some questions. Yay. I think. Microphone is coming. Hi, Janet. Hi, Mark. How are you? Good. Um, my question for you is, how did your writing process differ from the first book versus the second book? And what did you take away from it as a writer the second time around? Mm. Uh, my writing process, I think, was overwhelmingly the same, except with the second book, it was a lot more challenging because my time, like I got, you know, I sold my book on proposal, I got a book deal, and I quit my job, and I was like, I'm going to write. <laughs> and that's that was kind of the process. So I had all the time in the world. Um, and then my second book, it was, I was pulled in so many different directions. I had community, um, obligations, obviously personal obligations. I then also had so many other jobs like producing the trans list for HBO and then also planning my wedding and 
so much was going on in the working of, of this book. And so I felt a lot more distracted. So in that way, I had to like force myself into spaces where it was just built for writers. So I went to Hedgebrook um, Writers Residency, which is for women. I had like a cottage of my own. I went there for a month. I got a big chunk of writing done doing that. Um, like really crappy, bad writing, but it was, you know, the bones of the book. Um, and then I always write longhand. Um, so that's always been the way in which I've written. Um, so like usually my processes in the morning, I wake up, I do my morning pages, which are three longhand pages. I just get everything out of my head. Then I go into, and I transition to my writing. I do 10 to 20 pages within a few hours. Um, I let that sit. I then revisit yesterday's stuff and I transcribe yesterday's writing into the computer. Then I can edit as I'm transcribing it or putting it into the computer. And then I go back and I get, and so kind of like, that's, that was my process. Um, you, your other, you had another part of the question, which was, what um, what did I take away from? I think a part of it was learning about my, I had, this time I think I learned more about myself because I didn't seek. So my first book, I actually reported on my life too. A part of it was interviewing my best friend, Wendy, my husband, um, my mother, my father, and my brother. And so like so much a part of their experiences are a part of my first book. So a part of it felt like reportage in a sense. Um, and also deeply personal, and then also then the statistical and sociopolitical analysis stuff. So that book felt like, yes, the core of it is the personal story, but there had so much more information, whereas this was just me. And so I felt like I learned a lot more about me, what makes me tick. Um, that part of the end, I think I have a phrase that says like ambitious, ambitious to the point of st stupidity. <laughs> um, I noticed some of my like, um, how it could be emotionally manipulative in relationships to get what I wanted. Like I learned those little things about, about myself that was, that was interesting in telling and helped me tell the story more, more fully and to take responsibility for a lot of the feelings and some of the relationships that I had. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, when you were in the publishing industry and when you started as, I don't know if you were an intern or an assistant, how do you assert yourself as as a young woman of color in that space, um, when there were microaggressions and mm. certain comments made in that industry where people didn't really intend to say or anything, how do you respond to that, especially at a entry level job? Uh, do you want the real world advice or do you want? <laughs> well, you need to find friends that you can complain to. And to have that outlet, um, whether that's through instant message, whether that's through a text, uh, maybe, maybe there's a secret Instagram account where you can like, you know, do your Insta stories and communicate all your frustrations. But in terms of like wanting to keep a job and move up the ladder, um, that's the way that, you know, I just kind of kept it moving. Um, and so I found my outlets elsewhere. I had my black girlfriend groups. Um, we were all fellow interns or assistants or freelance researchers working for magazines. And we had a daily lunch where we said, this bitch said this today, or, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the way that we survived it so that we could keep our jobs because we also did not have a, you know, none of us had a financial safety net to be, you know, to blow stuff up. Then we also didn't have, um, career and, um, corporate capital yet. We didn't have, we hadn't proved ourselves yet a voice. And it, that seems really problematic to say, but um, 
I wasn't at a point of power within the that corporate structure to voice those things yet. And as soon as I did, when I was made an associate editor, then I was able to shift stuff and cover more black and brown faces on the website um, to assign, you know, reporters to go out and, you know, cover the Sanaa Lathan movie just as much as we cover the Catherine, um, McPhee, um, Catherine Heigl movie. Um, and so those little decisions I was able to make. Um, what also helped too was eventually when I had hiring power was hiring freelancers of color, um, writers of color to do that work. So that, that therefore like not my everyday was just surrounded by fighting problematic white women in those spaces. Yeah. Hi, Janet. Um, my Hi. name is Paulina. Um, so feeding off of her question, um, what advice would you give a visible trans woman um, going into corporate America? What field? I work in the fashion industry. Oh, okay. So supposedly liberal, but not. <laughs> um, I have a lot of friends who work in that in that space, and um, a lot of them work behind the scenes as you know, makeup art, makeup artists, hairstylists, assistant designers, and they talk about the ways in which you know they say like LGBT people are you know included in this industry. They're so open minded, da da da. But like, try to find trans people who are hired in on a photo shoot, you know, as a stylist, um, as a designer. It's very very rare. Um, and if you are in those spaces, oftentimes they want you to not talk about being trans, of course. They want you to blend in as much as possible. So knowing at being a you know, visible difference does make a difference. And so knowing that as you go into that space, like navigating people's curiosities and curiosity sometimes is dangerous. So knowing that, again, needing to find that you have your people outside of that space so that you can navigate that because oftentimes your body is literally on the line in terms of people asking you questions about yourself. Um, but the fashion industry is, it's, you know, you're not working on Wall Street. So um, it is better in, in the sense that there is that openness. So you can use that for your advantage in the sense of, um, in the sense of, you know, people's shortcomings, pushing that back onto them as they make those, those spaces. But I don't, I've never worked in the fashion industry, but all I know is that it's not as, inclusive as it's as it's brought out to be in the outside world. Though Laomi in that Nike ad is my everything. It was amazing. It's so beautiful and she's so talented. Random. I know she's not a designer, but Hello Janet. Um I had a question about your podcast. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love it. I uh, the the second I saw that you interviewed Miss Tina Lawson, I like panicked and <laughs> was so excited. I'm um, still you know, resurrecting myself. I was like that immediately <laughs> that shot to like top five, my favorite podcast with that. Like asking um, her to take a selfie in her kitchen. I was just like, this feels very basic, but I need this now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, she so, was like, okay. Yeah, just, yeah. I love her so much. <laughs> I do too. Um, so what was it? Um, what was your kind of process in terms of deciding to make a podcast and mm. like what made you want to enter that space? And how do you feel like that has um, impacted or, um, I guess influence your uh, storytelling and journalism. Mm -hmm. um, great questions. So it came out of a space of frustration. I had um, I had been working at MSNBC. I had a deal there. I had a show that was on. It was a digital show that was being incubated 
for the network and all this stuff. And, you know, the election happened and, and Trump then became a ratings powerhouse. That's all people wanted to watch. So then they cut a lot of their programming. Um, MSNBC shifted, as you can watch, it has shifted as a network. Um, and so I didn't have a space to talk about pop culture in the way that I wanted to talk about it, in the way in which I was investing myself in doing. And so podcasts became something that was a great accessible space. I had great friends at Pineapple Street Media. I had a publisher in Lenny Letter. Um, and so it became this thing where it was like, let's conquer this. Let's do 10 episodes. You talk to all of your faves. You're gonna ask all of your dream guests. I got really lucky that a lot of them said yes, that my premiere is Miss Tina Knowles Lawson. You know, the queen mother, the woman who was like a creative, you know, a creative force behind Destiny's Child. I got to unpack and tell her story. And so for me, it it really is just about um, that intimate space, similar to writing memoir or reading memoir, where it's an intimate exchange between two people. Because even when you come to someone's personal story, you're bringing yourself to it. And so what podcast allows that, it, it strips away this part of it that is a lot of pressure where it's like, I have to look snatched and like do all this stuff. And everyone's like, got to sit right. And so it creates an unnatural space. Whereas with podcasts, you're in someone's living room and you have a microphone and you forget the microphone's there and you just end up talking and you find these revelations and you find yourself, if you're vulnerable enough and powerful enough in your vulnerability to just share yourself. Like I never thought that I would end up crying in front of Miss Tina Knowles talking about Destiny's Child, <laughs> but it was the moment that needed to happen. And it was everything. And so many people, oh, you know, so tweet good. me about, you know, that conversation. And then even Miss, you know, Representative Maxine Waters, like that was, and we had like a hot 45 minutes, like that's it. They were like, she has something else to do. Um, and she should, you know, she had someone else to drag. We're gonna do a second hour um, yeah. just talking about everything that happened when you were talking to Auntie Maxine. I know, I know. Um, and so yeah, what I, I just love so much that there's a stripping away, but there's also like, just like, a, I think there's a real intimacy when you invite people in, in that, in that, way and I just love it. I love and I also love that the podcast community is really supportive. Like other TV's not like that. It's not like people are like, oh watch them, you know, da da da. But like people in podcasts are like, come on my show and so you can promote your show. And then they're tweeting about your show. And so there's this like kind of a it's like a very affirming community space, I think. Yeah. All right. Um oh back here. Thank you for being here, Gina. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, what advice would you have? I love for that you passed the okay. mic. <laughs> that was pretty good. I love okay. it. She's a good friend. Um, what advice would you have for a non-binary femme person from the South who's working in tech and like going in later consulting finance, but also more so, um, what what greater advice would you have for a person who wholeheartedly with full certainty believes in love, but like mm -hmm. also wants like a very demanding and charging career as a non-binary femme person? I will answer your second question because I don't know any, the industry stuff. I'm like, y'all, I only know my one industry. <laughs> um, but in terms of the love piece, are you in a relationship? No. Oh, sorry. Or is this person in a relationship? No. Okay. <laughs> that was good. Um, well, I would say the recognition that fulfilling partnership is something that you want, I think, is the obviously like a great first step and then not necessarily 
putting it as something that you need to necessarily not pursue. I think that it is just as important as everything else, of course. Um, for me, I just, so much of my young life was about being in a relationship. I wanted to experience love. Um, I write a lot about love in both of my books. Um, for me, I do think that there was a piece of me that maybe if I didn't vocalize it, but I believe that if I had this right partner, that then things would align or that I would then be able to fill these, um, deep holes inside myself that I wasn't ready to recognize. And so I wished I would have spent a lot of my younger years just really thinking about me and what I wanted and what I truly wanted and what I truly wanted in a partner. Um, because I think if you don't know those things as you're navigating those spaces, you end up compromising yourself. You end up choosing and spending time and investing a lot of your time. And, you know, we only have so much time in people that are not necessarily super deserving of you um, and who have not fully shown up for you. Um, and so for me, I would say, take your time, figure out what you want, not in the checklist kind of way, which, you know, you see like on like stupid matchmaking shows, um, but like in a way of like, what are the qualities or what do you want someone to bring to your life and what then you can you contribute to someone else's life? And do you even have time to contribute that? Cause like a relationship is work. Um, I make, well, right now I don't make that many compromises a day for my husband. Um, he makes a lot of compromises in order to show up for me in the ways in which I need him. Um, and you know, I could be, I could be better. <laughs> anyway, that has nothing to do with you. So I answered your question. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> Let's like, take girl. one yeah. last quick one. Raise your, put your hand down if it's not a quick one. You all are the worst. Um, let's go. Something fun. Right here in the middle. Yeah. Mine was actually for you, Lisa. It's a banana oh, okay, clip. Yes. It's what? About banana clip. The hair piece. Oh, the oh, banana clip. <laughs> I don't think it's a banana clip. No, I have a banana clip. Those are for me. I think it's the banana it's, clip. It, it, it's a I whole other thing. The banana clip is great. Right. Put it on the, the leave-in conditioner clip. and put in a banana clip. It's something else. <laughs> no, the banana clip is for me. I got <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's All right, what I was behind you, there's one quick. more question since that was very quick. Yeah. Thank you so much. Hi, Janet. Uh, Hi. Thanks for coming. Um, my question for you is, as a <laughs> trans woman in your 20s, how did you balance uh, breaking breaking down all these walls and barriers you've put up uh, within yourself? How did you balance that with just kind of being you and having fun and learning about yourself mm. in your 20s? Compartmentalizing. <laughs> you know, largely, that's how I was, that's how I think I was able to survive a lot of this stuff and navigate the spaces in which I was able to survive, you know? Um, and so for me, it was putting things and even parts of myself in different compartments that I didn't touch unless I was in certain relationships where I felt that it was necessary to talk about. Um, I also had great, you know, I was given great access because of the way in which I look and present um, and the way in which then I became credentialed as someone that we will then let in, a black woman that we will then let in, you know, oftentimes, you know, blending in as a cis black woman. There's not much privilege in that, but there is more privilege than, you know, a visible trans black woman, right? Um, and so for me, I, I do think that I was trained really well, or, you know, I was very equipped at being able to figure out what the space needed from me and what they needed to see from me um, without performing, but in the sense of that was how I was able to tap into having joy and having pleasurable relationships and 
you know, Netflix and chills and, <laughs> you know, partying with friends. And I think that's why I love um, the epigraph that I cho chose for Surpassing Certainty is Audre Lorde's quote um, about silence. Um, and she hits all of those marks that you just asked, and which is really the, the, the core of the book, which is a sense of, you know, you will lose people when you speak your truth, when you tell your truth, when you're unapologetic about the things that you want in the world. But you will find new people and you will <laughs> paint your nails and put on a dress and party. Um, and you will know with surpassing certainty that the only thing more frightening than not telling your truth or the not is not speaking. The not speaking is not um, telling your truth or whatnot. And so there is, I think that there, there are compromises to that. And there are things that, that you will lose um, and people who would not want to be engaged with you anymore, but then you'll find new people and people will come to a library on a Tuesday night for some strange reason to hear you talk <laughs> about, you know, your work. And so you'll find your audience, you'll find your people. Yeah. yeah. All right, again, that was Janet Mock speaking about her new memoir, Surpassing Certainty, with National Book Foundation Executive Director Lisa Lucas. Check out the book, check out the National Book Foundation, and check out Janet Mock's new podcast, which is called Never Before. As for the library's podcast, as always, we're grateful to you for listening. And if you're enjoying it, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And next week, a conversation with composer Philip Glass.